Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 162, and today's guest is Brian Chen, co-founder and CEO of Room. Lots and lots of startups and corporations have moved to an open office environment, which was supposed to foster collaboration amongst employees. Well, as it turns out, according to research published by CNBC, 90% of employees working in offices with an open floor plan experience increased stress levels, conflict, blood pressure, and turnover rates, which is all incredibly shocking to hear. So how do you solve this issue without completely renovating your office, which would be very costly and disruptive? Well, that's where Room comes into play. They are rethinking the modern workplace with their innovative phone booth design. And they are onto something as the company already has over 3,000 customers. Growing up, Brian always dreamed of being an entrepreneur. And this is actually his second company as he was previously a co-founder of a smart suitcase startup called Blue Smart, which was also a Y Combinator in this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like Brian's early experience teaching English in Ecuador and what that taught him about leadership, how he got into startups and his involvement with BlueSmart, the origin story of Room that is helping to improve mental health and wellness in the workplace, the current stage of the company, the current stage of Room and the growth plans ahead, advice on setting up and finding the right manufacturer, plus why they chose to work with partners in Indiana and Portugal, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, is your company hiring? If the answer is yes, then you might want to consider adding a BizPage subscription. It is our employment branding and hiring solution that helps create an audience of professionals in the tech industry. A BizPage subscription includes an a BizPage subscription includes an employment branding page, unlimited postings to our job board, access to our Send an email to info at venturefizz.com for more details. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Brian. Brian, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Um, so I recently had my first experience in a room up in Boston. So I was visiting a customer called Everquote and they had one of your uh, phone booths in there. So they're like, yo, you gotta check it out, it's the best thing. So I went in and I told it was like, wow, this is super amazing. It, it might need to be my next podcast studio. <laughs> uh, I think there's not, like when I came into your office here, I was like, you know what, that's, that's what I need because it's just so, you know, uh, you know, it's a great fit for many use cases. So anyways, we're gonna talk a lot about room, uh, but first let's talk about your background, kind of, you know, let's rewind the clock. Uh, growing up, you know, where did you grow up? What were you like as a child? So I was uh, born in Colorado. Uh, my parents moved to the U.S. from Taiwan. And uh, when I was 11, I moved back to Taiwan with my parents. So I went to middle school and high school in Taiwan, um, which was, you know, very interesting because Colorado and Taiwan could are essentially polar opposites. You know? Right. Um, so that was an interesting um, part about growing up. And then I came back to the U.S. after that. And then you ended up going to Swarthmore, and, and what did you study there? Was it economics? I studied, so actually my, my major, I had a double major. I uh, studied both English literature and economics. Um, and the reason I went to Swarthmore College actually was I had a couple of high school English teachers in Taiwan um, who were very influential uh, for me and who um, conveyed this, this passion about you know, learning and reading and critical thinking, and they really pushed me towards um, pursuing a liberal arts education, and that's how I ended up at Swarthmore. So what did you do coming out of undergrad? Uh, like any good, you know, liberal arts grad, <laughs> um, there was a little bit um, of uh, being lost, in, just in terms of where, where I wanted to go, what were the right career paths. I had spent four years studying, reading, thinking about deep issues and trying to become a better human being. And then all of a sudden, you know, you, you have to face the, the job force, right? Um, and um, what I knew that I wanted, I guess I knew I, I wanted two things. One was I, I've always had this idea that I wanted to be an entrepreneur and that's always been, um, you know, from an early age growing up in Taiwan, I saw entrepreneurs as my heroes uh, and um, Taiwan's story about economic growth was very much uh, in my mind a story of entrepreneurship so that was always kind of uh, something I knew I wanted to get involved in um, but the other thing I, uh, I knew was I wanted to have 
a life experience. Mm -hmm. Like, a, um, I had, um, you know, spent my time growing up between Colorado and Taiwan, and those were very different environments, but I never necessarily felt that I had pushed myself to truly be uncomfortable. Uh, so an opportunity came up where I could go to Ecuador and become a teacher. Um, and uh, it was actually at a private bilingual high school, and the job was to teach ninth and 10th grade high school English. Wow. Uh, so when that came up, it kind of, a lot of things fell into place. You know, I knew that um, my English teachers in high school were highly influential for me. Um, they were influential enough to, to drive me to kind of choose a particular school um, for college. Uh, and this was an opportunity to um, work and live in a country that I had never been, on a, in a continent really, that I had uh, never been to before, learn a new language, and really get out of my comfort zone when it comes to uh, being in front of students and being in the classroom. And what do you think that experience taught you? A lot. Um, it was honestly a, a challenging year. <laughs> um, I um, learned a lot about leadership. Um, there's, you know, as a, I was 21, 22 at the time, mm -hmm. and um, trying to manage a classroom of 14, 15 year olds um, <laughs> who um, didn't necessarily want to respect authority or, uh, you know, had all their own um, adolescent things and thoughts going on. Right. Um, and I uh, was faced with the challenge of, okay, how do I, how do I make this class engaging um, and engaging to a, a diverse group of people who were not um, all, you know, liberal arts, English literature majors. Right. <laughs> um, and classroom management taught me a lot about leadership and team culture, honestly. Um, and, um, you know, I also learned, picked up a little bit of Spanish and uh, grew, developed a, a love for, for um, Latin America, but um, I, I think the, the biggest learning for me was probably in the classroom. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I never thought of that. Like, teaching teaches you, because you got different personalities in the room, and you got to, you know, work on something that hopefully they're all drawn into. Uh, so there's a lot of parallels of leading a company, because uh, you've got different people working at your company, and you're hoping that they are all drawn into, you know, the same mission that the company has. Yeah. So what did you do after that? Uh, so I, I knew that... Um, Ecuador and the teaching experience was uh, really about a life experience, not necessarily a career decision. Um, so after um, a year in Ecuador and after doing a little bit of traveling uh, in South, South America, um, I went back to um, the U.S. I moved back to the U.S. I actually moved to California where um, my older sister was living at the time. Um, and Actually, I, I remember because I, I remember I was backpacking in Argentina <laughs> right after I had finished this year in Ecuador, mm -hmm. um, and I was reading a ton, reading a lot of books, um, and um, I was coming back and thinking a lot about that original intention I had um, that I mentioned about wanting to start a business and be an entrepreneur, right. uh, and I remember reading the next next thing. By Michael Lewis. Yes. Um, and yep. Michael Lewis, I think, basically takes it upon himself to follow Jim Clark, um, you know, a famous Silicon Valley entrepreneur uh, for a year. Um, and it was, you know, reading that and then it, it was just kind of rekindling and setting the direction for me where I knew I wanted to be in California and in the Bay Area. Right. Um, so I moved to the Bay Area. Uh, it was, um, end of 2008 when I moved and I went to these different meetups I went to I went knocked on doors of different startups and the world was falling apart mm -hmm. <laughs> rough times rough times well. <laughs> and I think um, yeah so st startups I, I probably um, just wanted to be kind of in, in that community uh, I probably knocked on the doors of 
dozens of different startups and just said, you know, I'm studying English literature and economics. I don't really have any skills, but I'll do whatever it takes. Um, and uh, it, it became clear after a few months of, 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 of doing that, that it wasn't going to happen for me in that particular time. And I ended up, strangely enough, uh, through a friend, um, getting a job um, at a uh, wealth management firm. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, even though th there was financial crisis um, at, the, at the time, um, uh, portfolios needed to be managed. So, right. yeah, needed to be saved. Yeah. <laughs> so after doing that for a stretch, then you went to Endeavor. What was Endeavor all about? So, um, at Hall Capital, uh, which is where I was doing um, work, uh, working in this um, wealth, manage wealth management job, mm -hmm. um, I continued to think obsessively about entrepreneurship and how I would eventually get my start, you know, in my own entrepreneurial endeavor. Um, and I remember seeking out the advice of Katie Hall, who is the, you know, the founder of Hall Capital, because um, I was thinking, well, Katie started her own company, uh, and it, you know, it ended up doing pretty well. And so I, I, I wanted to get her advice, and her advice was pretty clear. It was if, if you, if starting a company is what you want to do, um, and being involved in uh, technological innovation and uh, startups in general, then you need to make sure that you are surrounded by people who are thinking and obsessing about the same things. Mm -hmm. um, and so it became clear to me that uh, staying in a finance job was not the right path mm -hmm. um, and was not even uh, serving me or pushing me in the path that I wanted to take. Um, so uh, that's when I started looking at opportunities again you know with startups and venture capital and uh, I came across this nonprofit organization called Endeavor um, and their mission was to connect entrepreneurs and specifically to um, connect entrepreneurs in underserved markets uh, mostly emerging markets um, with Silicon Valley entrepreneurs and uh, venture capital investors in the U.S. to basically bridge the gap between these um, ecosystems, and uh, I was really driven, drawn to that mission mm -hmm. of closing the gap and of supporting and mentoring entrepreneurs who wanted to uh, build high-impact businesses. So um, I hopped on a plane, um, interviewed with Endeavor in New York, um, got the job, and um, two or three weeks later packed was up and moved. <laughs> packed up and moved and was uh, crashing on the couch of my friend. Um, and it was, it was, um, it was kind of a, a lot of things in my life coming together. Mm -hmm. The international background that I had, um, growing up in Taiwan, teaching in Ecuador, uh, the passion I had for, for entrepreneurship, it was all coming together and it was honestly one of the, the best jobs I think that one can have in their early 20s, meeting and talking with um, entrepreneurs who um, have to overcome really uh, almost unfathomable challenges in emerging markets, um, but who persevere and uh, succeed in building high impact businesses uh, and just getting exposure to that energy and to uh, and being in that flow of ideas and community um, really changed the trajectory of, of, of my of my life. Well, that's yeah. like a real life business school because you get you know the case studies of the entrepreneurs building companies, and you get to see firsthand the trials and tribulations that they're having to overcome at you know a massive or whatever scale that Endeavor operated at. It was, exactly. Yeah. So. And so I you know I, I got the chance to travel to South America to. Uh, Southeast Asia, wow. like Indonesia, um, we launch an office there. Um, places like Greece, even in the Middle East, um, Jordan, Saudi Arabia. It was it was an incredible um, opportunity and very eye-opening because um, you know the set of challenges that these entrepreneurs were dealing with they're very different from the set of challenges that 
one would deal with in um, the U.S. Right. And it just, um, it, it was humbling. So after spending uh, a little over two and a half years with that, you actually did get into starting a company. So how did that all come together? So I was, you know, I had kind of this um, courtside seat where I could, as you said, witness the trials and tribulations of, of these um, very inspiring entrepreneurs. Um, but courtside wasn't quite enough for me, right? I wanted to be in the game. I wanted to be in the game. Not courtside. Um, and, um, and, you know, that, that, was, that had been always the consistent um, plan. I just didn't know where, how to get there, right? Um, but the opportunity ar uh, arose when um, a friend that I made through Endeavor, um, who was um, an Endeavor entrepreneur from Argentina, um, he uh, had this idea. Um, he knew that I was that I wanted to be in the game and wanted to to really be a part of starting something from from scratch and, and learn you know learn how to do that. Um, so he had this idea for um, a, a company that ended up being called Blue Smart, which was a um, a smart suitcase. So uh, the idea of how do you how do you bring computing power and technology into uh, physical products and transform the travel experience. Um, and he pitched this idea to me about what smart travel could look like, starting with a smart carry-on suitcase. Um, and uh, I was like, you know, he had done, he had started companies before, um, and I wanted to be part of it. So um, that was my um, first chance of really getting my hands dirty, getting in from the ground floor um, at the truly like idea stage um, and learning how to go from idea to actual product and business. Um, so the advice that I received, you know, originally back from um, when I was at Hall Capital from, from Katie Hall uh, proved to be true. You know, I, f I found myself in the community and in the flow of, of ideas and entrepreneurship and um, that took me in the direction I wanted to go. So what did, what did the suitcase actually do? Like, how was it smart? Uh, the suitcase, it, I think the, the headline that probably gained the most traction was, this is the suitcase that James Bond would have. Um, <laughs> but it had location tracking, yep. so uh, GPS tra uh, capabilities. Um, it uh, also had um, load sensors so that you could sense the weight and mm. know whether the suitcase was going to be under the limit of uh, the, your particular flight and airline. Um, it also had uh, connected to your phone via Bluetooth so that you could lock and unlock it remotely. Uh, it was basically um, trying to solve the different pain points of travel, you know, being forced to check your, your carry-on or, or having your carry-on get lost um, and trying to solve those problems through um, embedded technology. Very interesting. So as the company, like which part did you manage? Like which part were you head of? Um, so I, I was woefully underqualified, I think, as most um, <laughs> entrepreneurs will tend to be because nobody's there's no such thing as a school for uh, starting business <laughs> right mm -hmm. um, you just have to do it right um, but I basically oversaw uh, all the operations for the business so um, everything from um, customer, customer support to legal finance manufacturing logistics supply chain um, all of that you know um, a lot. getting um, Getting the product, we uh, did a. We first launched um, on Indiegogo uh, crowdfunding, and um, our campaign was wildly successful. We sold over, or pre-sold over, ten thousand units wow. to something like a hundred countries. Um, and so, you know, we had to. I, I was um, given the challenge, Brian. Go and figure out. Go build this. How how do you how do we actually ship this? Like right. how do we fulfill these orders? Manufacturing. Um, yeah. Like, um, so that was um, yeah def definitely a learning experience. Well, let's talk about room. 
how'd you come up with the idea for Room and uh, talk more about what you guys do? It's it's it all um, somebody once described um, the way to navigate a career to me as uh, being like um, I guess he compared um, building a career to what Tarzan does in the jungle. You know, you kind of want to swing from one jungle vine to the other, mm -hmm. um, and that that is very much what, the way that my career and uh, has has unfolded. So. When I was at Blue Smart and I was facing this logistics challenge mm -hmm. um, and trying to figure out how to fulfill all of these tens of thousands of orders, um, I reached out to Ryan Peterson, who's the founder and CEO of Flexport, which is a you know tech-enabled global freight forwarding company, um, and he was uh, part of the Y Combinator community. So with Blue Smart, we went through YC. Um, and so I had access to him and was like, Brian, I need to figure out how to do this. He was incredibly helpful um, and we struck up uh, a friendship. When he learned that I had left Blue Smart, he reached out to me and said, Brian, I have this massive problem in my office. And he, you know, his company at the time was 20 people and now it's over a thousand people, right? Um, so he was just hiring, growing, um, moving offices frequent, very frequently. Um, and he said that every time he opened a new office, one of his one of his challenges was finding a place to um, for his employees to take phone calls, and noise in the open floor plan was driving people insane. Mm -hmm. And so uh, he um, he approached me and was like, "There is um, a business to be made here: um, flat packed phone booth." solving the problem of noise and privacy in open floor plans. Um, and he had been talking to, about this idea uh, for quite some time um, with another YC founder as well. And, but anyway, uh, these two guys came to me and said, if you can, if you can build this and get this off the ground, um, you know, we will provide capital, we will invest, and you can, you can build it as you want. <laughs> so did you see this problem as something like, okay, you know, because the whole movement from you know, when I started my career, it was, you know, KPMG, there was, partners had their offices and all the associates and senior associates had their high cubes. Yeah. And then all of a sudden everyone moved, you know, in the 2000s at some point to the open floor plan where companies like, you know, GlaxoSmithKline are all open floor plans now. Um, but that isn't, you know, it's supposed to foster collaboration yet. It's becoming more intrusive of tr getting work done, concentration, privacy, right? Like. Well, so when I first, uh, when Ryan first told me about um, a flat-packed phone booth, I didn't really know what to think. Right. Um, okay. I uh, was was confused. Is there that, a business this, there? This, yeah, is there a business? Like, and if there is a business, then maybe it's a lifestyle business. And right. um, but th that's not necessarily what what gets me up in the morning. It's not you know I, I want to work on things. Um, and after my uh, first experience as a founder, I wanted to make sure that my second business was going to be something that I really cared passionately about that I wanted to build for a long time. Right. Um, so um, at first I was like, huh, this is interesting. Um, not really sure it's what I would want to do. And so I, what I did actually was I took a few months and uh, just took on a bunch of different projects. And one of the projects was to look into and understand whether there really was an interesting opportunity in building phone booths for offices. And I learned a few things. Um, and so it was a process of discovery, but I realized that the phone booth product is unlike anything in the office that exists today, mm -hmm. right? Um, or at that time. It's not a new type of chair or desk. Uh, it's fundamentally a new type of category. So I realized that it, it changes the way that companies use the, the real estate footprint that they have. Mm -hmm. um, it has a really tremendous impact on mental health and you know health, uh, wellness and being in the, in the office because people, noise and distraction just drives people bonkers. Um, and I was you know researching on Twitter and saw, just the, there is just pure vitriol on Twitter about <laughs> right. com people complaining about open floor plans and 
Um, it was a, a very emotional issue. Uh, and then I realized that, you know, when I was thinking about what's the alternative, I realized that the alternative was actually construction. Right. Where you have to go to your landlord, ask for a building permit, um, uh, hire a general contractor, and go through a very disruptive process to actually physically build these spaces. And the combination of these different attributes made me think more deeply about how offices are built out and uh, the fact that people don't enjoy being in offices seemed like a very big problem that needed to be solved. And uh, the fact that um, this was had just clearly been ignored um, just opened my eyes to the idea that there should be a new way to build out offices. Mm -hmm. And a, f a phone booth is a perfect place to start because it solves the biggest problem in the modern uh, workplace, which is noise and lack of privacy. Um, and because it's uh, designed for a single person, um, it is the easiest place to actually start replacing tenant improvements and construction mm -hmm. when building out offices. Uh, so, um, you know, I got together with um, uh, my co-founder, Morton, who has more of a, uh, whereas I have an operational background, he has much more of a uh, design, brand, marketing uh, background. And um, we got together and, um, and started, you know, creating a vision for where we think we could we, we could take the business and that's when we um, went from just you know kind of a phone booth.com um, idea to uh, to room.com as um, to, and room as a, a, um, the business that we wanted to build together so how do you get a physical product off the ground so like you know you're collaborating with your co-founder um, do you actually like sketch out a design then bring it to you know someone who actually makes it into a product and go through iterations then make, like 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 how's the whole process work it's it's uh, it's not dissimilar from uh, a software product mm -hmm. right um, a digital product you want to start with kind of minimum viable testing you know, minimum viable product okay. um, so uh, the, the very, very first versions of the product were um, truly kind of hammer and nail hacked together. Ryan had actually tried to build um, a phone booth in his office, and uh, he had hired a carpenter on Craigslist to do it, and it was called the Sweatbox because it had no ventilation, right? Um, but um, we, you know, after um, a little bit of time, um, started working with a, a design, industrial design agency um, and uh, they helped with the, some early prototypes um, and then uh, you know just with every single iteration you try to make the product very um, uh, iterable and so that you can react quickly to customer feedback. Uh, th this was actually I think a little bit of a learning that I had from um, BlueSmart which was we had this crowdfunding campaign and the first thing that we did was uh, we went to China and um, found a contract manufacturer where the minimum order quantity is 5,000 units. Wow. Um, now, if you place an order for 5,000 units, it's very hard to do something quickly, change it, mm -hmm. and then adapt. Right. right? So with um, the phone booth product, we pursued um, a product development path that was um, much more flexible and uh, allowed for a lot more user testing and um, iteration, and that's um, that's that's the path that we took. And there's a, there was a lot, a lot to learn. You know, I think when we first started, it was the two of us, and we were um, assembling, delivering, and assembling phone booths ourselves. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, I remember getting turned away from one office because we didn't have a certificate of insurance or a COI, and I was like. What's a COI? Right. Yeah, don't <laughs> um, worry about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, the, you know, there the, turns out that delivering um, a 400-pound product um, to offices and figuring out how to assemble it in a seamless way um, is not as straightforward as uh, dropping it off at the local FedEx office, right? right. So 
there was a lot to learn, not just about the product, but about the entire customer experience that we had to go through. Um, and uh, so th those were the early days of just taking that minimum viable product, moving it to offices, seeing how people behaved and um, interacted with the product in offices, and um, yeah, going through these very quick iterations until we got to a product that we really felt comfortable with, uh, going public um, and, and actually trying to, to launch more yeah, in, a, in a bigger way. Yeah, so the, the launch piece. Okay, so you have a product that you feel, okay, this is what the market is you know, requesting out there. Uh, how do you actually get it out there for companies to buy? Uh, we, so in, in try, understanding whether this was a business we wanted to pursue in the first place, mm -hmm. what we did is actually literally in the course of an afternoon, we put a website up with phone booth renders um, on a Wix website. Okay. And uh, the, I think the call to action was pre-order now. Mm -hmm. And it said something around um, how we had a really long lead time and how we were out of stock, but the price was $29.95. Um, and um, it was an, uh, a product that had the features that we wanted. And that was our, we, we threw some ad money behind it. You know, so we spent maybe like, $500 or $1,000 on Google AdWords just to understand um, whether it was driving any attention what the feedback would be and then of right. course if anybody called the phone number on the website or if anybody wanted to chat live we were there um, and so, so that's how we first kind of I mean that, that's not really a launch that's Improve more of a, a that's how we proved out that there would be demand right. And we did that for months. We did that for months just to, to learn. And um, I think one, one of the surprising things was, you know, we had, uh, we had Microsoft, people from Microsoft and IBM, you know, facilities managers, fill out our janky form and say, please call me, we have this problem. <laughs> wow. Um, and so, you know, I, yeah, Morton and I looked at each other and we're like, wow, like, there's, there's, pretty, there's something here, yeah. there's something here. Um, there's clearly a gap in the market, and uh, it's 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 one that we have an opportunity to fill, and um, it is a perfect stepping stone into this larger vision that we started developing. How, I don't know if you have an exact answer, but how many iterations do you think it took to get to the point where your product is today? And you know, some of the thought behind the manufacturing and the soundproofing. I saw uh, there's 1,000 recycled plastic bottles in each. I mean, that's that's awesome to you know see how you're using materials for a better purpose. You know, so how did, how many iterations did it take? And uh, to the product that we have today, I mean, I want to say almost 10 yeah. different iterations, um, and obviously through um, each iteration was of a varying level of maturity, right? Mm -hmm. But um, lots, right? And uh, we're not done. We're still improving the product. We're still iterating. Uh, and th that, that is the mindset that we need to have to make sure that we continually have, you know, the best product the best, at the best price in the market. Um, but from an early stage, when we were thinking about the problem that we were solving, you know, uh, there the problem was that offices were ignoring the needs of human beings and people in the office, right? That uh, people were screaming and complaining about this pro massive problem, and there wasn't a solution. And so, when we thought about room, we knew that like the mission was going to be let's let's make let's put people back in the center of all of this. Let's make room for people in the office. Uh, and that's why we actually came up with the name room. Um, because it, we could build this really inclusive mission um, around and, and brand around the business. And as part of that, uh, in, in terms of in, in, in thinking about how do we bring people back into the story, we knew that we wanted to treat the buyer of our product as a human being as well. Mm -hmm. And you know the other side of a B2B transaction is not a business, it's a person. Right. Um, and there is this 
accelerating trend of what people call the consumerization of enterprise. So the purchase experience, the products uh, that um, that are bought by businesses end up feeling are starting to feel and look a lot more like consumer products. Right. right. So we wanted to design the business with that in mind, and uh, we we wanted to take a consumer oriented approach to this B two B procurement decision. And um, a big part of that was sustainability. You know, how do we um, how do we make sure that this is something that a consumer would feel comfortable and, and uh, want to buy, mm-hmm. not just a business, but a consumer, a person at the other side of that transaction. Um, so sustainability was an important part very early on of um, what we wanted to build, and um, th- so we use. Uh, recycled plastic bottles for the sound absorb absorbing material that's used in our product um, and every phone booth um, uses yeah a thousand eighty eight recycled plastic bottles um, and that's something that that we are proud of proud of because um, you know the alternative would be to use petroleum based uh, foam or something mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. that's uh, that's certainly not good for the environment now your sales model, we talked a little bit about how you got some initial customers, but I saw in another interview you said it was very Slack-like, meaning someone sees it or one purchase is made in a, comp- a company and then all of a sudden they're purchasing many more. So you're, you know, it's almost like you're coming in with that one unit but then expanding rapidly. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And th- this, this speaks again to that, that consumerization right. of enterprise trend, but a lot of the, um, the uh, you know, and I, I'm... Obviously, I follow all the the tech bloggers and the, the podcasts and all that. And a lot of the most successful enterprise software companies today are ones that embraced a bottom-up selling strategy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the companies that come to mind are, you know, Slack, Dropbox, Asana, uh, Zoom. Mm-hmm. These are uh, products that can be adopted at fairly low levels in an organization, and. Uh, where the product speaks for itself and gains adoption in a bottom-up manner. And um, that is the way that we wanted to design our go-to-market strategy as well. We wanted to take that consumer approach, uh, let there be a low enough point of entry for um, an office manager to be able to you know, buy with the credit card as opposed to uh, having to get CFO approval. PO numbers. And PO numbers. Contracts. And, exactly. <laughs> um, and so we wanted to be very low friction, um, seamless consumer-like experience, and that worked. You know, and it, what, what it translated into is first order, whether it's coming from Microsoft or whether JP, or JP Morgan or Nike, which we've sold to, um, or whether it's coming from a 10-person startup, first order has been one to two units for the entire you know time that we've been in the market and the difference is just that you know the larger corporations uh, have a lot more need for phone puts and it takes a longer time for them to, to place those reorders um, but that is very much the the pattern that we see um, when our phone booth is placed in an office environment people see that it's used constantly people see that it's a good experience they seek it out and uh, they realize that they need more. And then, you know, one employee in one office is talking to um, an employee in another office. And then all of a sudden, uh, it, it's brought to the attention of the facilities manager who manages global real estate. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, uh, our salesperson's cold email, you know, saying, hey, have you heard about phone booths? Have you heard about room? Um, is taken pretty seriously. So it's a very efficient go-to-market uh, strategy for us. And um, it's been a big part of um, our capital efficiency and um, competitive positioning. And yeah, talk about the capital efficiency. So uh, you've raised two million. Now, usually when you're bringing a product to market like this, there's a tremendous amount of capital usually that you need to raise to bring it to market and sales team. Like so, the capital efficiency of what you've accomplished is amazing. Yeah. Um, no, it's something that we're we're very proud of. We um, and 
th this is where we've taken advantage of the fact that that even though we've taken a consumer approach, it's not a consumer product. Um, and the reason that's important is, you know, with, in the suitcase business, you need to, to table stakes means that you need to be able to offer next day delivery. And mm -hmm. uh, the world that we live in today, um, people want uh, really fast turnaround times and um, you need to be able to stock up for Black Friday. Black Friday might be 40% of your year's sales. Yeah. So that is not capital efficient because right. you have to take on inventory. a ton of inventory risk. You need to place that order for 5,000 units and, and whatnot. And in, in the business that we have, um, it's, you know, there is no Black Friday dynamic um, and uh, next day delivery doesn't make any sense because if you want the product and you want to buy it, then you need to create space for it. You need you need some time. So, um, what we've done is uh, capital efficiency is about cash flow management, mm -hmm. and so we've taken the dynamics of our business and just been very disciplined and very thoughtful about how we manage our cash flows, mm -hmm. um, and that's that's really been the secret to it. So you're building a foundation of a business based on revenue. Imagine that. Imagine that. Right? <laughs> uh, we'll talk about the current stage of the business as far as where you're at, as far as your know, employees, growth plans ahead, hiring, new products. Yeah. Um, I think it's, it's really remarkable how quickly the market has taken up this product. Uh, we you know, officially launched in May of 2018. So, um, that's maybe 20 months ago. Um, and we now have 3,000 businesses that we count as customers. Wow. 90% um, of our customers have, have never purchased a modular phone booth before. Mm -hmm. So this is a story of innovation and category creation. Right. Right. Um, and for the most part, people, you know, if you take your, your random person off the street uh, in the US they still haven't heard about what a modular phone booth is and they've probably never been in one so we are still just scratching the surface in terms of awareness about this product and awareness of uh, how it can solve the problems of open floor plans mm -hmm. um, but yeah we have we've sold to over 3,000 businesses um, we uh, recently launched in Europe um, we have a small team um, of people um, there with offices in um, Berlin and London. Mm -hmm. uh, we're very excited about um, where Europe is going to take us. A lot of our customers that are global multinationals actually have been asking us for a long time to to support their offices in, in Europe. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, we were finally able to do that just, just a few months ago and have started hiring. Um, so, um, but we're now a truly global company, right? We have New York, San Francisco, Berlin, London. Um, the team is about 55 people now. Um, and uh, we're, we have products that are um, scheduled to launch in the summer of this year. And it's, just, it's a very exciting time for us. You know, um, we're seeing the, the traction in the market. We are, um, we have, I think, a, a very exciting and differentiated mission um, and vision for how offices will go, get built out. Um, and it's a, yeah, it's a special time at the company. Well, now that you've established such a strong brand and product market fit, one would think you probably would have a great use for a new round of capital to really blow this to the next level. Yeah. To be announced. <laughs> <laughs> Stay tuned. Stay tuned. Um, now you did some collaborations too, like with Calm, yeah. uh, which is super cool. So how did things like that come about? Uh, so, you know, in the, what I mentioned in the early days was um, I, we understood that the phone booth product has this tremendous impact on mental health and wellness in the office. That it does, that being in an open floor plan can be stressful and distracting. So there was, all, there was this mental health angle that we knew we wanted to play on and, um, and capitalize on from a very, very early stage. So um, one of our angel investors um, is connected to the co-founders at Calm and he made the connection. Um, and 
it, it just made a ton of sense, right? You know, the, the idea that you could make room for calm in the office, make room for for dedicated wellness space. Um, mental health is uh, a massive um, problem for for businesses, and it's it is getting the conversation out there uh, so that employers care about their employees' mental health is just an incredibly important thing to do. Um, so we found um, you know, common ground with Calm and decided to work on this together. Very, very cool. Now, now what about um, setting up the manufacturing? So you talked a little bit about you, know, you explored that option in China, you'd have to order 5,000 units yet your manufacturing is in Portugal and Indiana. Yeah. So uh, different than what one would probably expect of manufacturing, and but it's worked out really well in terms of what your needs are. So what advice would you give to other founders that need to build a, you know, manufacture a physical product and setting up that manufacturing process? Yeah, finding a, the right manufacturing partner is about um, finding uh, facilities and people who are suited for your stage of business. So in the earliest days, our volumes were low and we needed a ton of flexibility. We needed um, a, a manufacturing partner that would be capable of iterating with us quickly, being be capable of making changes on the factory floor at a moment's notice. Um, and where they would still be really excited in terms of our relatively low volumes. So um, typically that's, you know, you're not gonna find that uh, with like a tier one manufacturer that is used to, to, to building and selling tens of thousands of units, mm -hmm. right? Um, so our first factory um, was a you know, relatively low volume um, furniture manufacturer. And um, as we grew in scale, we had to um, start thinking about the evolving needs of our supply chain and the evolving needs of um, our, our manufacturing partner. And so um, we have, as we've entered different uh, stages of the business and different levels of volume, we've had to evolve our processes and our partners accordingly. Um, I think it's a mistake to try to go with a scale partner from day one. Um, because if you know um, the attention that, that they and the bandwidth and resources that they have to allocate to you uh, in your company in your small project probably won't be sufficient for your needs uh, because you're such a small drop in the bucket so um, there is just this Goldilocks concept when you're looking for um, partners and I, I think that, that that applies not just to manufacturing partners but to suppliers across the board um, you you have to find out what is the right thing to do now, not in two years, because um, or not in three or four years, or when you become a uh, the billion dollar business you want to end up building. Um, you, it is uh, one step at a time. So a common theme of um, you know more I guess maybe direct to consumer type of businesses with you know starting out online, then building physical showrooms, so like Casper and away like you see physical like locations now um, so do you, do you actually have showrooms as well like is that something and then what are your thoughts on that kind of you know having those showrooms set up like what's the benefits of doing that uh, we do have showrooms um, we have a very specific way um, of thinking about showrooms though um, the, you know I think the, the worst showroom you can go to is one where um, people aren't using the product and people uh, and it's just it's like a stale environment so that's not what we what we try to build right. um, because we have a physical product um, being able to provide access to you know a tactile um, a tactile experience is is important um, and what we want to be able to do is provide that in environments that where our product fits very naturally but and is not just staged um, so we, uh, yeah, we've set up showrooms, um, in all of the, the hubs where we're located. Um, and we're yeah, in New York, it's, uh, our showroom is in our own office, uh, where our own employees use the product. Um, 
in our other offices where our employees are working out of co-working spaces, um, our showrooms are located inside and in collaboration with those co-working spaces. Got it, okay. And again, you see you see the product in a pretty natural environment. You see it being used and you see you can understand the value in a very immediate and visceral way by, by stepping into these environments. Um, yeah, so that's kind of how we think about it. We do, uh, we do want it to be in natural environments, but we also do want the experiences to be controlled and curated and uh, a, a positive reflection of, um, of the brand um, and the company. Now you talked about your, uh, you, you like to consume you know, different books, podcasts around entrepreneurship. Any that you recommend that you've uh, listened to or read recently? Uh, yeah, I, so there's a, there's a book that has been published recently that started off as a Google Doc um, called The Great CEO Within. Mm, okay. uh, it's written by a CEO coach um, who um, has worked with a lot of the, the top um, founders and entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley who, um, and it, it's, it's kind of a handbook, mm-hmm. right? And um, it's, uh, it's got tons of wisdom. I don't read it in, in linear fashion. <laughs> uh, I kind of pick and choose what chapters I want to look at when the uh, when the theme becomes appropriate. Um, but that's that's been um, helpful um, in recent weeks. So you're busy building a company, uh, but outside of, of work, what do you like to do? I like being active um, and exercising. I like playing sports. I've gotten into playing tennis recently. Um, I haven't had a chance this winter, but I hope to go snowboarding sometime soon, um, when time and schedule schedule permits. Uh, I, yeah, I, I, I like being very active and ideally outdoors. Were you a snowboarder as a kid in Colorado? I was actually a skier when I was a kid, but um, I, yeah, I when I returned to Colorado um, during the winter, well, during one winter in college, I took up snowboarding and haven't looked back. Well, Brian, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background, your professional history, and the journey into entrepreneurship, and of course, all the great things you're doing with Room. Thank you. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.